Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Starborn by Andrea Norton. Volume 4, Chapter 7, Many Eyes, Many Ears. This was not the first time that Dalgard had faced the raging fury of a snake devil thirsting for a kill. The slaying he had done in the arena was an exception to the rule, not the usual hunter's luck. And now that he saw the creature crouched at the far end of the hall, he was ready. Sasuri also followed their familiar pattern, separating from his companion and slipping along the wall toward the monster, ready to attract its attention at the proper moment. Only one doubt remained in Dalgard's mind. This devil had not acted in the normal, brainless fashion of its kin. What if it was able to assess the very simple maneuvers, which always had before completely baffled its species? and attacked not the moving merman, but the waiting archer. It was backed against another door, a closed one, as if it had fled for refuge to some aid it had expected, and did not find any. But as Sasori moved, its long neck straightened until it was almost at right angles with its narrow shoulders, and from its snake's jaws proceeded a horrific hissing that arose to a scream as its leg muscles tensed for a spring. At just the right moment, Sasori's arm went back. His spear sang through the air, and the snake devil, with an incredible twist of its neck, caught the haft of the weapon between its teeth, crunching the iron-hard substance into powder. But with that move, it exposed its throat, and the arrow from Dalgard's bow was buried head-deep in the soft inner flesh. The snake devil spat out the spear and tried to raise its head, but the muscles were already weakening. It fought the poison long enough to take a single step forward, its small red eyes alight with brainless hate. Then it crashed and lay twisting. Dalgard lowered his bow. There was no need for a second shot. Sasori regarded the remains of his spear unhappily. Not only was it the product of long hours of work, but no merman ever felt fully equipped to face the world without such a weapon in his hand. He salvaged the barbed head and broke it free of the shred of haft the snake devil had left. Nodding it at his belt, he turned to Dalgard. Shall we see what lies beyond? Dalgard crossed the hall to test the door. It did not yield to an inward push, but rolled far enough into the wall to allow them through. On the other side was a room that amazed the scout. The colonists had their laboratories, their workshops, in which they experimented and tried to preserve the remnants of knowledge their forefathers had brought across space, as well as to discover new. But the extent of this storehouse, with its bewildering mass of odd machines, tanks, bales, and stock shelves and tables, was too much to be taken in without a careful and minute examination. We are not the first to walk in here. Sasuri had given little attention to what was stacked about him. Instead, he bent over the disturbed dust in one aisle. Dalgard noted as he went to join the merman that there were gaps on those tables which ran the full length of the room, lines left in the grimy deposit of years that told of things recently moved. And then he saw what had interested Sasori. Tracks. Some resembling those which his own bare feet might leave, except that there were only three toes. It was them! Dalgard, who had been a hunter and a tracker before he was an explorer crouched for a clearer view, 
Yes, they were recent, yet not made today or even yesterday. There was a thin film of dust resettled in each. It was some days ago. They are not in the city now, the merman declared with certainty. But they will come again. How do you know that? Sasuri's hand swept about to include the wealth around them. They have taken some, perhaps to them the most needful, but they will not be able to resist gathering the rest. Surely they will return, perhaps not once, but many times, until... Until they come to stay. Dalgard was grim as he completed the sentence for the other. That is what they will work for. This land was once under their mastery. This world was theirs before they threw it away, warring among themselves. Yes, they dream of holding it all once more. But... Sasori's yellow eyes took on some of the fire that had shone in those of the snake devil during its last seconds of life. But that must not be so. If they take the land, you have the sea, Dalgard pointed out. The merman had means of escape. But what of his own clansmen? Large families were unknown among the Terran colonists. In the little more than a century they had been on this planet, their numbers, from the 45 survivors of the voyage, had grown to only some 250, of which only 120 were old enough or young enough to fight. And for them, there was no retreat, no hiding place. We will not go back to the depths. There was stern determination in that declaration from Sasori. His tribe had been long hunted, and it wasn't until they had made a loose alliance with the Terran colonists that they had dared to leave the dangerous ocean depths, where they were prey of monsters more ferocious and cunning than any snake devil. They now housed their families in the coast caves and on the small islands offshore to increase in numbers and develop new skills of civilization. No, knowing the stubbornness which was bred into their small furry bodies, Dalgard did not believe that many of the sea people would willingly go back into the sunless depths. They would not surrender tamely to the rulership of the loathed race. I don't see what we could do to stop them. Dalgard spoke aloud, half to himself, as he studied the tables closely packed, the machines standing on bases about the walls, the wealth of alien technology. The restriction drilled into him from early childhood that the knowledge of those others was not for his race, and in some way dangerous, gave him an uneasy feeling of guilt just to be standing there. Danger, danger which was far worse than physical, lurked there, and he could bring it to life by merely putting out his hand and picking up any one of those fascinating objects that lay only inches away. For the pull of curiosity was warring inside him against the stern warnings of his elders. Once, when Dalgard had been very small, he had raided his father's trip bag after the next to the last exploring journey the elder Nordis had made, and he had found a clear block of some kind of greenish crystal, in the heart of which thread-like lines of color wove patterns that were utterly strange. When he had turned the block in his hand, those lines had whirled and changed to form new and intricate designs, and when he watched them intently, it had seemed that something happened inside his head, and he knew here and there a word, a fragment of alien thought, just as he normally communicated with the cub who was Sasori or the hoppers of the field. And his surprise had been so great, he had gone running to his father with the cube and the story of what happened when one watched it. 
but there had been no praise for his discovery. Instead, he had been hurried off to the chamber where an old, old man, the son of the great man who had planned to bring them across space, lay in his bed. And Forkin Kordoff himself had talked to Dalgard in his old voice, a voice as withered and thin as the hands crossed helplessly on his shrunken body, explaining in simple, kindly words that the knowledge that lay in the cubes and the oddly shaped books the Terrans sometimes came across in the ruins was not for them, that his own great-grandfather, Dard Nordis, who had been one of the first in the mutant line of sensitives, had discovered that. And Dalgard, impressed by Forkin, by his father's concern, and by all the circumstances of that day, had never forgotten nor lost that warning. We cannot hope to stop them, but we must learn when they will come again and be waiting for them, with your people in mind, for I tell you now, brother of the knife, they must not be allowed to rise once more. And how can we foretell their coming? Dalgard wanted to know. Perhaps that alone we cannot do, but when they come, they will not leave speedily. They have stayed here before without harm, and their distrust has been lulled. When next they come, it will be only according to their natures that they will wish to stay longer, not snatching up the closest to hand of these treasures of theirs, but choosing out with care those things that will give them the best results. Therefore, they may make camp, and we can summon others to aid us. To return to Homeport will take several days, even if we push, pointed out the scout. Word can pass swifter than man, the merman returned, with confidence in his own plan of action. We shall put other eyes, other ears, many eyes, many ears to serve us for us. Be assured we are not the only ones to fear the return of those others from overseas. Dalgard caught his meaning. It would not be the first time that the hoppers and other small animals living in the grasslands and the runners and even the mothbirds that only the mermen could mind-touch would relay a message across the land. It might not be an accurate message. To transmit that by small animal brains was impossible. But the meaning would reach both merman and colony elders. Trouble in the north, help needed there. And since Dalgard was the only explorer at present who had chosen the northern trails, his people would know that he had sent the warning and would act upon it, as Sasuri's message would in turn be heeded by the warriors of his tribe. Yes, it could be done, but what are the traces they had left here? The slaughtered snake devils? Sasuri had an answer for that. Let them believe that one of my race came, or that a party of us ventured to explore inland. We can make it appear that way, but they must not know of you, I do not believe they ever learned of you or how your fathers came from the sky, and so that may swing the battle in our favor if it comes to open warfare. What the merman said was sensible enough, and Dalgard was willing to obey orders. As he left the storehouse, Sasori trailed after him, scuffing each dusty print the scout left. Perhaps a master of trailcraft could unravel the spore, but... The colonist was ready to believe that no such master existed in the ranks of those others. In the outer hall, the merman approached the now-dead snake devil and jerked from its loose skin the arrow that had killed it. Loosing the head of his ruined spear from his belt, he dug and gouged at the small wound 
tearing it so that its original nature was concealed forever. Then they retraced their way through the underground passages until they reached the sanded arena. Already insects buzzed hungrily about the hulks of the dead monsters. There was a shrill squeal as the remaining infant reptile fled from the pouch where it had hidden. Sasori hurled his knife and the blade caught the small devil above the shoulder line, half cutting, half snapping its tender neck so that it bounded aimlessly on to crash against the wall and fall back, squirming feebly. They collected the arrows that had killed the others. Dalgard took the opportunity to study those bands on the forearms of the adults. To his touch, they had the slick smoothness of metal, and yet he was unfamiliar with the material. It possessed the ruddy fire of copper, but through it ran small black veins. He would have liked to have taken one with him for investigation, but it was out of the question to pry it off that scaled limb. Sasori straightened up from his last gruesome bit of stage setting with a sigh of relief. Go ahead, he pointed to one of the other archways. I will confuse the trail. Dalgard obeyed, treading as lightly as he could, avoiding all stretches in which he could leave a clear print. Sasori ran lightly back and forth, mixing the few impressions to the best of his ability. They backtracked to the river, retrieved the boat and recrossed, to leave the city behind and strike into the open country beyond its sinister walls. Night was falling, and Dalgard was very glad that he was not to spend the time of darkness within those haunted buildings. But he knew that it was more than a dislike for being shut up in the alien dwellings that had brought Sasori out into the fields. The second part of their plan had to be put into operation. While Dalgard willed his body to be motionless, the merman lay relaxed upon the ground before him as he might have floated upon his beloved waves in some secluded cove. His brilliant eyes were closed. Yet Dalgard knew that Sasori was far from asleep, and with all his own power he tried to join in the broadcast, that urgency that would send some hopper, some night runner, on to spread the rumor that there was trouble in the north, that danger existed and must be investigated. They had already met one colony of runners ranging southward to escape, but if they could send another such tribe traveling, arouse and aim south a hopper exodus, the story would spread until the fringe would reach the animals who lived in peace within touch of Homeport. The sun was gone, the dark gathered fast. Dalgard could not even see the clustered buildings of the city now, and since he lacked Sasori's range and staying power, he had no idea whether their efforts had met with even a shadow of success. He shivered in the bite of the wind and dared to lay his hand on Sasori's shoulder, feeling anew the electric shock of warmth and bursting life that was always there. Having so broken the other's absorption, he asked a question. Wouldn't it be well, brother of the knife, if with the rising sun you returned to the sea and struck out to join your tribesmen, leaving me here to watch until you return? Sasuri's answer came with a speed that suggested that he too had been considering the problem. We, we shall, shall see what happens with the sun's, sun's rising. rising. It is true that in the sea I can travel with greater speed, that there are hunting parties of my people striking into these waters, but they will not come to this city without good reason. It is an accursed place. With the early morning, the city drew them once more. Dalgar's curiosity pulled him to that storehouse. He could not stifle the hope that with luck 
he might find something there that would solve their problem for them. If there could only be a way to avoid open conflict with those others, some solution whereby the aliens need never know of the existence of the colony. For so many generations, even centuries, the aliens had been confined, or had confined themselves, safely overseas on the western continent. Perhaps if they were faced by some new catastrophe, they would never attempt to come east again. He had visions of discovering and activating some trap set to protect their treasures, which could be turned against them. But he realized that he lacked the technical knowledge that would have aided him in the search for such a weapon. The remnants of Terran science and mechanics that the outlaws had brought with them from their native world had been handed on. The experiments they had managed since with crude equipment had been carefully recorded, and he was acquainted with the outlines of most of them. But the few destructive arms they had imported were long since worn out or locked charges, and they had not been able to duplicate them. Just as they had torn asunder the ship in which they had crossed space to use its parts for the building of Homeport, so had they hoarded all else they had brought. But they were limited by lack of materials on Astra, and their fear of the knowledge of the aliens had kept them from experimenting with things found in the ruins. There might be hundreds of objects on the shelves of that storage place that used properly would reduce not only just the room and its contents to glowing slag, but take half the city with it. But he had no idea which, or which combination would do that. And here, Sasori could be no help. The mermen had made great strides forward in biological and mental sciences, but mechanics was a closed section of learning because of their enforced habitat under the sea and of machines they knew less than the colonists. I have been thinking, Sosori broke into his companion's chain of reasoning, of what we may do. And perhaps there is a way to reach the sea more swiftly than by returning over land. Down river? But you said that there may be watching devices there, which would be centered on objects coming upstream, not down. But in this city there should be yet another way. He did not enlarge upon that, but since he apparently knew what he was doing, Dalgard let him play guide once more. They recrossed the sluggish river, the scout looking into its murky depths with little relish for it as a means of transportation. Though it had an oily, flowing current, there was a suggestion of stagnant water with unpleasant surprises waiting beneath its turgid surface. For the second time they entered the arena. Avoiding the bodies, Sasuri made a circuit of the sanded floor. He did not turn in at the archway that led to the storage place, but paused before another, as if there lay what he had been searching for. Dalgar's less sensitive nostrils picked up a new scent, the not-to-be-missed fetor of damp underground ways where water stood. The merman edged around a barred gate as Dalgard sniffed again. The smell of damp was crossed by other and even less appetizing odors but he did not catch the stench of the snake devils. And relying on Sasuri's judgment, he followed the merman into the dark. Once again, patches of violet light glimmered over their heads as the passage narrowed and sloped downward. Dalgard tried to remember the general geography of the section which was above them now. He had assumed that this way, with its dank chill, must give onto the river. But when they had pattered on for a long distance, he knew that Either they had passed beneath the stream, or that he was totally lost as to direction. As their eyes adjusted to the gloom of the passage, the violet light grew stronger. 
So Dalgard saw clearly when Sasori whirled and faced back along the way they had come, his body in a half-crouch, his knife ready in his hand. Dalgard, his bow useless in the damp, drew his own sword knife. But though his mind probed and he listened, he could neither sense nor hear anything on their trail. Chapter 8 Airlift They were airborne once more, but Rafe was not pleased. In the seat beside him, which Captain Hobart should be occupying, there now squirmed an alien warrior who apparently was uncomfortable in the chair-like depression so different from the low stools he was accustomed to. Sariki was still in the second passenger place, but he too shared that with another of the men from the city, who rested across bony knees a strange weapon rather than a Terran rifle. No, the spacemen were not prisoners. According to the official statement, they were allies. But Rafe wondered, as against his will he followed the globe in a northeastern course, how long would that fiction last if they refused to fall in with any suggestions the aliens might make? He did not doubt that there was on board the globe some surprise which could shoot the flitter out of the air. If, for example, he adjusted the controls before him and bore west toward the mountains and the safety of the spaceship. Either of the aliens he now transported could bring him under control by using those weapons, which might do anything from boiling a man in some unknown ray to smothering him in gas. He had not seen the arms in action, and he did not want to. Yet Hobart and Lablet did not, as far as he could tell, share his suspicions. Lablet was eager to see the mysterious storehouse, and the captain was either moved by the same desire, or else had long since deduced the folly of trying to make a break for it. Thus they were now heading seaward, with the captain and Lablet sharing quarters with the leaders of the expedition on board the globe, and Rafe and the Comtech with companions, or guards, bringing up the rear. The aliens had even insisted on stripping the flitter of much of its Terran equipment before they left the city, pointing out that the cleared storage space would be filled with salvage when they made the return voyage. The globe had been trailing along the coastline, and now it angled out to glide over a long finger of cape, rocky and water-worn, that pointed at almost a right angle into the sea. This dwindled into a reef of rock like the nail on a finger. The sea ahead was no unbroken expanse. Instead, there was a series of islands, some merely tops of reefs over which the waves broke, others more substantial, rising well above the threatening water, and one or two showing green vegetation. The chain of islets extended so far out that when the flitter passed over the last one, the main continent was out of sight. Now only water stretched beneath them. The globe skidded on as if its pilot had given it an extra burst of power, and Rafe accelerated in turn, having no desire to lose his guide. But they were not about to make the ocean-wide trip in one jump. At midday he saw again a break in the smooth carpet of waves, another island, or perhaps the southern tip of a northern continent, for the land swept in that direction as far as he could see. The globe spiraled down to make a neat landing on a flat plateau, and Rafe prepared to join it. When the undercarriage of the flitter jarred lightly on the rock, he saw signs that this was a man-made or alien-fashioned place 
that must have had much use in the dim past when his new companions ruled all their native world. The rock had been smoothed off to a flat surface, and at its perimeter were several small domed buildings. Yet, as there had been in the countryside and in the city, except at its very heart, there was an aura of desertion at the site. Both his alien passengers jumped out of the flitter, as if only too pleased at their release from the Terran flyer. For the first time, Rafe was shaken out of his own preoccupation with his dislike for the aliens to wonder if they could be moved by a similar distaste for Terrans. Lablet might be interested in that as a scientific problem. The pilot only knew how he felt, and that was not very comfortable. Sariki got out and walked across the rock, stretching. But for a long moment, Rafe remained where he was, behind the controls of the flyer. He was as cramped and tired of travel as the Comtech, perhaps even more so since the responsibility of the flight had been his. And had they landed in open country, he would have liked to have thrown himself down on the ground, taking off his helmet and unhooking his tunic collar to let the fresh wind blow across his hair and across his skin. Perhaps that would take away the arid dust of centuries, which to his mind had grimed him since their hours in the city. But here was no open country, only a landing space that reminded him too much of the roof of the building in the metropolis. A half dozen of the breastplated warriors filed out of the globe and went to the nearest dome, returning with heavy boxes. Fuel? Supplies? Rafe shrugged off the problem. The pilot was secretly relieved when Captain Hobart dropped out of the hatch in the globe and made his way over to the flitter. Everything running smoothly? He asked with a glance at the two aliens who were Rafe's passengers. Yes, sir. Any idea how much farther we'll have to... Rafe questioned. Hobart shrugged it off. Until we work out basic language difficulties, who knows anything? He muttered. There's at least one more of these way stations. They don't run on atomics, need some kind of fuel, and they have to have new supplies every so often. Their head man can't understand why it isn't necessary for us to do the same. Has he suggested that his techniers want to look at our motors, sir? Hobart unbent a little. It was as if in that question he had read something that pleased him. So far we've managed not to understand that, and if anybody tries it on his own, refer him to me. You understand? Yes, sir. Some of the relief in Rafe's tone came through, and he saw that the captain was watching him narrowly. You don't like these people, do you, Kirby? The pilot replied with the truth. I don't feel easy with them, sir. Not that they've shown any unfriendliness. Maybe it's because they're alien. He had said the wrong thing and knew it immediately. That sounds like prejudice, Kirby. Hobart's voice carried the snap of a reprimand. Yes, sir, Rafe said woodenly. That had done it as far as the captain was concerned. The fierce racial and economical prejudices that had been the keystones of the structure of Pax had left their shadow on Terra's thinking. Nowadays, a man would be better condemned for murder than for prejudice against another. It was the unforgivable crime, and in that unconsidered answer, Rafe had rendered unreliable in the eyes of authority any future report on the aliens that he might be forced to make. Suddenly cursing his lack of judgment, Rafe made a careful check of the flyer that might not be necessary, but going through the motions of his duty gave him some relief. 
Once, the idea struck him of claiming some trouble that would take them back to the spacer for repairs. But Hobart himself was too good of a mechanic not to see through that. They covered the second stage of their flight by evening, this time putting down on an island where, by some ancient and titanic feat of labor, the top had been sheared off a central mountain to make a base. A ring of reefs cut off the land from the action of the waves, and once a party of aliens left the main company and made their way down the mountain to prowl along the shore. They made a discovery of sorts where Rafe saw them ring in some object that had pulled up on the sand. What it was and what meaning it had for them, they did not try to explain to the Terrans. The party spent the night there, the four spacemen wrapped in their sleeping rolls by the flitter, the aliens in their globe ship. The Terrans did not miss the fact that the others had unobtrusively posted guards at the only two places where the mountain could be climbed, and each of those guards cradled in the crook of his arm one of those rifle weapons. They were aroused shortly after dawn, as far as Rafe could see, the island was barren of life, or else any creature native to it kept prudently out of the way while the flyers were there. They took off, the globe rising like a balloon into the morning sky, the flitter waiting until it was airborne before scaling after it. The mountainous island where they had based was the sea sentinel of an archipelago, which they saw spread out below them as if someone had flung a handful of pebbles into a shallow pool. Most of the islands were merely rocky crags, but there were two which showed the green of small open fields, and Rafe thought he caught a glimpse of a dome house on the last. They were now over a region thick with islands, the first collection giving way to a second, and then a third. Rafe, expecting no sudden move on the part of the globe he trailed, was startled when the alien ship made a downward swoop. At the same time, the warrior seated beside him tugged at the sleeve of his tunic and jabbed a finger toward the ground, clearly in order to follow. Rafe cut speed and cautiously lost altitude, determined that he was not going to be rushed into any move for which he did not know the reason. The globe was hovering over a small island, set a little apart from the others. A moment later, Sariki's excited voice drew Rafe's attention from his controls to what was going on below. There's people down there. Look at them run! They were too far away to be sure of the nature of the brown-gray things so close to the color of the sea-washed rock that they could only be detected when they moved. But it was evident that they were alive, and as Rafe brought the flitter closer, he was also certain that they ran on two hind feet instead of an animal's four pads. From the under part of the globe ship licked a tongue of fire. With the force of a whiplash, it coursed across the rock, and in its passing embrace, the creatures below writhed and withered to charred heaps. They had no chance under that methodical blasting. The alien beside Rafe signaled again for a drop. He patted the weapon that he held and motioned for Rafe to release the covering of the windshield. But the pilot shook his head firmly. This might be war. The aliens could have a very good reason for their deadly attack on the creatures surprised below, but he wanted no part of it nor did he want to get any closer to the scene of the slaughter, and he made an emphatic gesture that the windshield could not be opened while the flitter was airborne. But as he did so, they glided down, and he caught a single good look at what was going on on the rock, a look that remained to haunt his dreams for years to come. For now he saw clearly the creatures who ran fruitlessly for safety. Some reached the edge of the cliff and leapt 
to what was an easier death in the sea. But too many could not make it and died in flaming agony. And they were not all of one size. There were children there. There was no mistaking the infant in its mother's arms and two small ones who fled hand in hand until one stumbled and the burning lash caught them both as the other strove to pull the fallen to his feet. Rafe gagged. He triggered the controls and soared up and away, fighting the heaving in his middle, shaking off with one savage jerk the insistent pawing hand of the alien who wanted to join in the fun. Did you see that? he demanded of Sariki. For once, the context sounded subdued. Yeah, I did, he replied shortly. Those were children, Rafe hammered home the point. Well, young ones anyway, the contact conceded. Maybe they aren't people. They had fur all over them, and Rafe grinned mirthlessly. Should he now accuse Sariki of prejudice? What did it matter if a thinking creature was clothed in a spacesuit, silken bandages, or natural fur? It was still a thinking creature, and he was sure that those had been intelligent creatures he had just seen blasted without a chance to fight back. If these were the enemy the aliens feared, he could understand the vicious cruelty of the attack that had killed the man he had been shown back in the city. Fire against primitive spears was not equal, and when the spears got their chance, they had to make up for much to balance the scales of justice. He didn't even wonder why his emotions were so wholeheartedly enlisted upon the side of the furred people, nor did he try to analyze his feelings. He was only sure that more than ever he wanted to be free of these aliens and out of this whole venture. The warrior sharing his seat was sulking now, twisting about to look back at the island, as Rafe circled in ever-widening glides to get away from the site and yet not lose track of the globe when it would have finished its dirty business and taken once more to the air but the alien ship was in no hurry to leave. They're making sure. No survivors, Serbigi reported, giving the whole island a fire bath. I wonder what that stuff is. I would just as soon not know, Rafe returned from between set teeth. If that is one of their pieces of precious knowledge, we're as well off without it. He stopped short. Perhaps he had said too much but Terra had been racked by the torrid horror of atomic war until all his kind had been so revolted that it was bred into them not to meddle again with such weapons. And weapons by fire aroused in them that old horror. Surely Sariki must feel it too, and when the contact did not comment, Rafe was sure of it. He hoped that the slaughter had made some impression on the captain and Lablet in the bargain. But when, as if sated with killing, the globe rose again from its position over the island, moving almost sluggishly into fresh skies. He had to follow it on. More islands below, and he feared that each one might show some sign of life and tempt the killers to a second hunting. Luckily, that did not happen. The chain of islands became a cape, as they had on the coast of the western continent, and now the globe swung to the south, trailing the shoreline. Forests made green splotches, with bluish overtones running from the sea cliffs back to carpet the land. So far, no signs of civilization were to be seen. This land was as untouched as that where the spacer had landed. Then they saw the bay, stretching out wide arms to engulf the sea. It could have harbored a whole fleet. 
and marching down to its waters were broad levels of buildings, a giant staircase leading from sea to cliff tops. Wow, they had it here too! Rafe saw what Sariki meant by that outburst. Destruction had struck. He had seen the atomic ruins of his own world, those which were free enough from radiation to explore. But he had never seen anything like these chilling scars. In long strips, the very stone which provided foundation for the tiered city had been churned and boiled, had run in rivulets of lava down to the sea, enclosing narrow tongues of still untouched structures. The fire whip the globe had used, magnified to some infinitely greater extent, perhaps? It could be. The alien at his side pressed tightly against the windshield, gazing down at the ruins, and now he mouthed a gabble of words that was echoed by his fellow, sitting with Sariki. Their excitement must mean that this was their goal. Rafe slacked speed, waiting for the globe to point away to a landing. But to his surprise, the alien ship shot forward inland. The long day was almost over as they came to a second city, with a river knotting a ribbon through its middle. Here there were no traces of the fury that had laded the seaport with havoc. This collection of buildings seemed whole and perfect. There was, oddly enough, no landing strip within the city. The globe coasted over the rough oval and came down in open fields to the west. It was a maneuver that Rafe copied, though he first dropped a flare as a precaution and brought the flyer down in its red glare, with the warrior expressing shrill disapproval. I don't think they like the fireworks, Sariki remarked. Rafe snorted. So they don't like the fireworks. Well, I don't like crack-ups, and I'm the pilot. But he didn't believe that the Comtech was really protesting. Sariki had been very quiet since they had witnessed the attack on the island. Grim-looking place, was his second comment as they touched the ground. Since Rafe privately had held that opinion of all the alien settlements that he had seen so far, he agreed. Their two alien passengers were out of the flitter as soon as he opened the bubble shield and as they stood by the Terran flyer, they held their weapons ready, facing out into the dusk as if they half expected trouble. After the earlier episode that day, Rafe did not wonder at their preparedness. Terror begets terror, and ruthlessness arouses retaliation in kind. Garby, Sariki! Hobart's voice sounded out of the shadows. Stay where you are for the present! Sariki settled deeper into his seat. He doesn't have to tell me to put on the brake jets. I like it here. Rafe did not need to echo that. He had a strong surmise that had he been tempted to roam away from the flitter, the move would not have been encouraged by the alien guardsmen. If this was their treasure city, they would not welcome any independent investigation by the strangers. When the captain joined them, he was accompanied by the officer who had first shown Rafe the globe, and the warrior was either disturbed or angry for he was talking in a steady stream, and his hands were whirling in explanatory gestures. They didn't like that flare, Hobart remarked, but there was no reproof in his words. As a spacer pilot, he knew that Rafe had only done what duty demanded. We're supposed to remain here for the night. Where's Lablet? Sarigi wanted to know. He's staying with Yuzaz, the alien commander. He think he has the language problem about solved. Good enough. Sariki pulled out his bedroll. You know we're out of touch with the ship. There was a second silence, unduly prolonged it seemed to Rafe. 
and then Hobart spoke. We couldn't expect to keep in call forever. The best comm has its range. When did you lose contact? Just before these heroes wrapped up playing with fire back there. I gave the boys all I knew up until then. They know we were headed west, and they had us beamed as long as they could. So it wasn't too bad, thought Rafe. But he didn't like it, even with that mitigating factor. To all purposes, the four Terrans were now surrounded by some twenty times their number in an unknown country, out of all communication with the rest of their kind. It could add up to disaster. Chapter 9. Seagate What is it? Dalgard asked his question as Sasori, his attention still on their back trail, stole along cautiously on a retracing of their path. But that retreat ended abruptly with the merman plastered against the wall, his whole shadowy form a tense warning that stopped Dalgard short. In that moment, the answer flashed from mind to mind. There are those which follow. Snake devils? The others? The colony scout supplied the only two explanations he had, sending his own thought out questing. But as usual, he could not hope to equal the more sensitive merman, whose race had always used that form of communication. Those who have long haunted the darkness, was the only reply he could get. But Sasori's actions were far more indicative of danger, for the merman turned and caught at Dalgard, pulling the larger colonist along, a step or two, with the urgency of his grip. We cannot return this way, and we must travel fast. For Sasuri, who would face, and had faced up, to a snake devil with a spear as his sole weapon, this timidity was new. Dalgard was wise enough to accept his verdict of the wisdom of flight. Together they ran along the underground corridor, soon putting a mile between them and the point where the merman had first taken alarm. From what do we flee? Dalgard sent as the merman began to slacken pace. There are those who live in this darkness, by one or by two. We could speedily remove them from life, but they hunt in packs, and they are as greedy for the kill as the snake devils scenting meat. Also they are intelligent, once, long before the days of burning, they served those others as hunters of game, and those others tried to make them ever more intelligent and crafty so that they might be sent to hunt without a huntsman. At last they grew too knowing for their masters. Then those others, realizing their menace, tried to kill them all with traps and tricks. But only the most stupid and the slowest were disposed of. The others withdrew into underground ways such as this, venturing forth only in the dark of night. But if they're intelligent, why can't they be reached by the mind touch? Through the years, they have developed their own ways of thought, and these are not the simple creatures of the sun, or such as the runners. Once they were taught to answer only to those others, now they answer only to each other. But... He spread out his hands in one of his quick, nervous gestures. To those who are cornered by one of their packs, they are death. Since they could not, by Sisuri's reckoning, turn back, there was only one course before them, to follow the passage they had chanced upon. The merman was certain that it ran under the river, and that eventually they would reach the sea. 
unless some side turn before that point would make them free in the countryside once more. Dalgard doubted if it had ever been a well-used way, and the presence of earthfalls here and there over which they stumbled and clawed their way led him to consider the wisdom of keeping on to what might be a dead end. But his trust in Sasuri's judgment was great, and as the merman plowed forward with every appearance of confidence, he continued to trot along without complaint. They snatched moments of rest, taking turns standing guard, but the walls about them were so unchanging that it was hard to measure time or distance. Dalgard chewed at his emergency rations, a block of dried meat and fruit pounded together into an almost rock-like consistency, and tried to make the crumbs he sucked loose satisfy his growing hunger. The passageway was growing damper. Water trickled down the walls and gathered in fetid pools on the floor. Dalgard's dislike of the place grew. His shoulders hunched involuntarily as he strode along, for his imagination pictured the rock above them giving way to dump tons of oily river water down to engulf them. But though Sasuri avoided splashing through those pools, wherever he might, he did not appear to find anything upsetting about the moisture. At last the human can stand it no longer. How much farther to the sea? He asked without any hope of a real answer. As he had expected him to do, Sasuri shrugged. We should be close, but having never trod this way before, how can I tell you? Once more they rested, choosing a stretch that was reasonably dry, munching their dried food and drinking sparingly from the stoppered duocorn horns that swung from their belts. A man would have to be dying of thirst, Dalgard thought, before he would palm up any of the stagnant water from the passage pools. He drifted off into a troubled sleep in which he fled beneath a sky that was a giant lid in the hand of an unseen enemy, a lid that was slowly lowered to crush him flat. He awoke with a start to find Sasuri's cool, scaled fingers stroking his shoulder. Dream demons walk these roads. The words drifted into his half-awake mind. They do indeed, Dalgard roused to answer. It is always so where those others have been. They leave behind them the thoughts that breed such dreams to trouble the sleep of those who are not of their kind. Let us go. I would like to be out of this place, under the clean sky, where no ancient wickedness hangs to poison the air and thought. Either the merman had miscalculated the direction of their route, or the river mouth was much farther from the inland city than they had believed. For though they pushed on for what seemed like weary hours, they came to no upward slope, no exit to the world they knew. Instead, Dalgard began to realize that it was just the opposite. At last he could stand it no longer, and broke out with what he feared, hoping that Sasori would deny that. We're going downhill. To his disappointment, the merman agreed. It has been so for the last thousand of our paces. It is my belief that this leads not to the sun, but out under the sea. Dalgard missed a step. To Sasuri, the sea was home, and perhaps the thought of being under its floor was not disturbing. The land-born human was not so prepared. If he had experienced discomfort under the river, what would it be like under the ocean? His terrifying dream of a lid being pressed down upon him flashed back into his mind, but his companion was continuing. 
there will be doors, perhaps into the sea itself. For you, Dogard pointed out, but I'm no dweller in the depths. Neither were those others, yet they used these ways. And I tell you, in his earnestness, the merman laid his hand once more on Dalgard's arm. To turn back now is out of the question. The death that holds the darkness is still sniffing out our trail. Dalgard glanced involuntarily over his shoulder. By the faint and limited light of the purple discs, he could see little or nothing. An army might creep there undetected. But... His protest was in answer to the merman's seeming unconcern. Sasuri, at the first intimation that the hunters were behind them, had shown wariness. Now he did not appear to care. They had fed. Scouts follow because we are something new and thus suspect. When hunger grows once more in them, and their scouts report that we are meat, then is the time to draw knives and prepare for battle. But before that hour, we may have won free. Let us search for the gate we now need. However confident the merman might be, Dalgard could not match that confidence. In the open air, he would have faced a snake devil four times his size without any more emotion than a hunter's instinctive caution. But here, in the dark, unable to rid himself of the belief that thousands of tons of seawater hung over his head, he found himself starting at any sound. His knife, bare and ready, in his sweating hand. He noted that Sasori had stepped up the pace, passing into his sure-footed glide that made Dalgard exert himself to keep up. Before them, the corridor stretched without a break. The merman's promised exit, if it existed, was still out of sight. It was difficult to gauge time in this dark hall, but Dalgard thought that they were at least an hour farther on their way when Sasori paused abruptly once more his head cocked in a listening attitude, as if he caught some whisper of sound too rarefied for his human companion. Now! The thought hissed as if he spat the word out. They hunger and they hunt. He bounded forward with a spurt that Dalgard copied, and they ran lightly, the dust undisturbed in years, puffing up beneath the merman's bare-scaled feet and Dalgard's hide boots. Still the unbroken walls, the feeble patches of violet in the ceiling, but no exit. And what good would any exit do him, Dalgard thought, if it opened under the sea? There are islands off the coast, many islands. Sasuri caught up with him. It is in my mind that we shall find our door on one of those. But run now, knife brother, for those at our heels... Awake and thirst for flesh and for blood. They have decided we are not to be feared, but may be run down for their pleasure. Dalgard weighed his knife in his hand. Well, they're going to find us with fangs, he promised grimly. It will be better if they do not find us at all, returned Sosori. A burning arc of pain encased Dalgard's lower ribs, and his breath came in gusts of hastily sucked air as their flight kept on, down the endless corridor. Sasuri was also showing signs of the grueling pace, his round head bent forward, his furred legs pumping as if only his iron will kept them moving. 
and the determination that kept him going was communicated to the scout as a graver warning than any thought message of fear. They were passing under one of the infrequent violet lights when Dalgard got something else. A mental thrust so quick and sharp it was as if a sword had cut through the days of fatigue to reach his brain. Yet that had not come from Sasuri, for it was totally alien, wavering on a band so near the extreme edge of his consciousness that it pricked, receded, and pricked again as a needle might. There was no message of fear or warning, but implacable stubbornness and ravening hunger. And in that instant, Dalgard knew that it came from what was sniffing out their trail, and he no longer wondered that the hunters were immune to other mental contact. One could not reason with that. He spurted forward, matching the merman's acceleration of speed, but to Dalgard's horror, he saw that his companion now ran with one hand brushing along the wall as if he needed support. Sasuri! His thought met a wall of concentration through which he could not break. In a way, he was reassured, for a moment, until another of those stabs from their pursuers struck him. He longed to look back to see what hunted them, but he dared not break stride to do that. <sighs> the welcoming cry from Sasuri brought his attention back to his companion as the merman broke into a wild run. Dalgard summoned up his last rags of energy and coursed after him. Sasuri had halted before a dark lump that protruded from the side of the corridor. A sea lock. Sasuri's claws were clicking over the surface of the hatch, seeking the secret of its latch. Panting, Dalgard leaned against the opposite wall. Just as a protest formed in his mind, he heard something else. The pad of many feet, many, many feet, echoing down the corridor, and somehow he was able not to look. Round spots of light, dull and greenish, close to the ground, as if someone had flung a handful of phosphorescence into the dark. But there was no phosphorescence. They were eyes. Eyes. He tried to count and knew it was impossible to so reckon the number of the pack that ran mute but ready. Nor could he distinguish more than a very shadowy glimpse of forms that glided close to the ground with an unpleasant sinuosity. Ah! Again, Sasori's cry of triumph. There was the grate of unwilling metal forced to move, and a puff of air redolent with the sea striking their bodies in chill threat. The brightness of violet light stepped up to a point far beyond the lamps in the corridor, and with it came no rush of drowning water, as Dalgard had half expected. And when the merman clambered through the hatch, he prepared to follow, well aware that the eyes and the pattering feet that bore down upon them or almost within range. There was a snarl from the passage, and a black thing sprang at the scout. Without clear sight of what he was fighting, he struck down with his knife and felt it slit flesh. The snarl was a scream of rage as the creature twisted in midair for a second try. In that instant, Sasuri, leaning halfway out of the passage, struck in his turn, thrusting his bone knife into the shadows which now boiled with life. Dalgard leapt for the locked door, kicking out swiftly and feeling the toe of his boot contact with a crunch against one of those darting shades, sending it back end over end into the press where his fellows turned, snapping upon it. Then Sasori grabbed at him, bringing him in, 
and together they slammed the hatch, feeling it shake with the shock of thudding bodies as the pack outside went mad in their frustration. While the merman fastened the locking bar, bringing out of the long, motionless metal another protesting screech, Dalgard had a chance to look about him. They were in a room some eight or nine feet long, the violet light showing up well tangles of equipment hanging from pegs on the walls, a pile of small cylinders on the floor. At the far end of the chamber was another hatch door, locking with the same type of bar as Sasuri had just lowered to seal the inner one. The merman nodded to it. That is the sea. Dalgard slit his knife back into its sheath, so the sea lay beyond. He did not welcome the thought of passing through that door. Like all of his race, he could swim. Perhaps his feats in the water would have astonished the men of the planet from which his tribe had emigrated. But unlike the mermen, he was not seaborn nor equipped by nature with a secondary breathing apparatus to make him as free in the world of water as he was on land. So Suri might crawl through that hatch without fear. For Dalgard, it was as big a test as to turn and face what now raged in the corridor on the inner side. There is no hope that they will go now. Sasori answered his vague question. They are stubborn, and hours or even days will mean nothing to them. Also, they can leave a guard there and robe at will to return upon signal. That is their way. That left only the sea door. Sasori padded across the chamber and reached up to free one of the strange objects dangling from the wall pegs. Like all things made of the marvelous substance used by those others for any article that might be exposed to the elements, it seemed as perfect as on the day it had first been hung there, though that date might have been a hundred or more astron years earlier. The merman uncoiled a length of thin, flexible piping that joined a two-foot canister with a flat piece of metallic fabric. Those others could not breathe underwater, as you cannot, he explained as he worked deftly and swiftly. Within my own memory we have trapped the scouts, wearing aids such as these, so that they might spy upon our safe places. But their last foray was some years ago, and at that time we taught them such a lesson that they have not dared to return. Since they are not unlike you in body, and since you breathe the same air above ground, there is no reason why this should not take you out of here. Dalgard accepted the apparatus. A couple of elastic metal bands fastened the canister to the chest of the wearer. The fabric molded into a perfect, tight face mask as it touched the skin. Sasori went to the pile of cylinders. Choosing one, he tinkered with its pointed cone to be rewarded by a thin hiss. Ah! Again, his recognition of the rightness of things. These still contain air. He tested two more and then brought all three back to where Dalgard stood, the canister strapped into place, the mask ready in his hand. With infinite care, the merman fitted two of the cylinders into the canister and then was forced to set the other aside. We could, could not, not change them, them while underwater, underwater anyway, he explained. So, so it will do little good to take extra supplies with us. Trying not to speculate on the amount of air he could carry in the cylinders, Dalgard fastened on the mask and adjusted the air tube and sucked. Air flowed. He could breathe. 
but for how long? Sasori, seeing that his companion was fully provided for, worked at the bar locking the sea hatch. But in the end, it took their combined strength to spring that barrier and win through to a small cubby that was actually the sea lock. Dalgard knew one moment of resistance as the merman closed the hatch behind them. For an instant, it seemed that the dubious safety of the dressing chamber and their faint hope of the hunters giving up their vigil was better than what might lie before them now. But Sasori pushed shut the hatch, and Dalgard stood quietly without offering any visible protest. He tried to draw even breaths, slowly, as the merman activated the lock. When the water curled in from hidden openings, rising from ankle to calf and then to knee, its chill striking through flesh to bone, he kept to the same stolid waiting, though this seemed almost worse than a sudden gush of water sweeping them out in its embrace. The liquid swirled about Dalgar's waist now, tugging at his belt, his arrow quiver, tapping on the bottom of the canister that held his precious air supply. His brow, shielded from the wet by its casing, was swallowed up inch by inch. As the water lapped at his chin, the outer door opened with a slow inward push that suggested that the machinery controlling it had grown sluggish with the years. Sasuri, perfectly at home, darted out as soon as the opening was large enough to afford him an exit, and his thought came back to reassure the more clumsy landsman. We are in the shadows. Land rises ahead. The roots of an island. There is nothing to fear. The word ended abruptly in what was like a mental gasp of either astonishment or fear. Knowing all the menaces that might lie in wait, even in the shallows of the sea, Dalgard drew his knife once more as he plowed through the water, ready to rescue, or at least to offer, what aid he could. <laughs>